Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. This is basically the game where we're going to find out where Eric Tenog's um, United are. I don't know what, what people expect in four weeks. I ain't David Blaine. You know, produce magic or Paul Daniels. Under De Zerbe, you know, they scored three or more goals in half of his games, in seven of his 14 games. It's more of a, I guess, a barometer of where they're at under Conte, a barometer of where they're at compared to Arsenal, which I think Spurs fans compare themselves to Arsenal pretty incessantly, not so much vice versa. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Dan Bardell and this is the Weekend Preview. I'm joined by George Ellick as well as the Athletic's Tim Spears and Richard Amofa. Derby Day is here for both Arsenal and Manchester City who have more than just a title race to worry about this weekend. There's now local bragging rights on the line as well. We'll get into City's visit to Old Trafford and Arsenal's trip to Spurs, plus El Sacchio pits Everton against Southampton and Liverpool head to the seaside. That's all to come here on the Weekend Preview. Before we look ahead to the weekend, João Felix sent off on his Premier League debut as Chelsea lost at Fulham on Thursday night. João Felix could be in real trouble here. His Chelsea debut might be ending prematurely. George, Chelsea's miserable season continues, but you actually think that João Felix was a bright spark before he's sending off? I think he definitely was a bright spark, wasn't he? You know, he had, I think, five shots uh, in the game like, leading up to that. In the first 15 minutes, two Fulham players were booked because they couldn't handle him. I think when a player comes in, you know, a high-profile player comes in on loan, it's normally a bit of desperation, I guess. In João Felix's case, it does feel like a slightly different situation where, yes, they're paying quite a lot of money for to have him for six months, but he has come here off the back of a, an OK World Cup. He is a, a really promising young player. And I think we saw in the pitch for the first hour or so, at least, that he's probably better than what Chelsea have in that role currently. But the to be sent off um, when they just got back into the game for what was a really reckless tackle was could well cause more damage to their season than, than any positive afterwards. But uh, yeah, I, I think on, on the basis of what we saw yesterday... It's a pretty shrewd acquisition, um, but it doesn't help Chelsea for the next three games now that he's banned. And you know, for, for Graham Potter and Chelsea, it does feel like they're taking a very long-term view over this Chelsea project. I personally think that unless they basically lose every game between now and the end of the season, Graham Potter will probably still be Chelsea manager for the opening day of, of next season, regardless what happens between now and then. But things are, are looking very, very poor. They are defensively so shaky. They're conceding plenty of goals and... and Key players who've been so pivotal for their success under Thomas Tuchel just look a complete shadow of their former selves. 
Yeah, João Felix was the first player to be sent off for Chelsea on their Premier League debut and the first to do so for any club since Federico Fazio for Spurs against Manchester City in October 2014. Nice little fact for you there. Talking of facts, uh, you know, George says it's a lot of money. My friend texted me this morning to say uh, that Felix red card means he'll be available for a maximum of 14 league games, which they paid 11 million for apparently George you said though because of the, the the nature of this season that's actually more than a January signing would normally get well yeah I think Chelsea have got more games um, to go because of I guess because of the World Cup and the fixture congestion between now and the end of the season than normally teams do it, it's an interesting wider point talking about the financial outlay of, of top level transfers where you know if we were covering EFL clubs then getting an, an advantage in the transfer window is, is absolutely essential in terms of, of being an upwardly mobile club when you're a Man City or a Chelsea and you effectively have a, a blank checkbook, so long as you can make it work within the FFP rules, which seems like a, a quite easy task, a quite easy accounting task, does it really matter? Chelsea and City don't live and, live and die by, by their outlay. I reckon 99% of football fans think that Manchester City overpaid for, for Jack Grealish. They're probably right. Do I think City care? Not one bit. I, I don't think they're really fast. They wanted a player. They went out and they, and they paid what they needed to get him. I don't think getting an advantage in the in the window is important. Morally, it might be, but but in terms of pure footballing discussion, I think it gets too much airtime. Yeah, Rich, I'd like to ask you about Fulham because we need to give them some credit because they're having a phenomenal season. Before I do ask you that though, and, and go on to telling me about Fulham, do you think Chelsea will stay up? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think I think they will just about. I think. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think going forward, they still have uh, attacking quality. Obviously, their defence is, is is really shaking, and it's a, it's a big concern. But I think I think they'll just be fine. Okay, and and Fulham, I mean, yeah, even when Mitrovic didn't play last night, they're still mm. excellent. Yeah, I mean, they're really organised. They're really really dogged. Uh, you know, defensively, and you know, uh, Silva's got them playing with flair going forward, and they're they're a really exciting team to watch at the moment. And you know, deserves all the credit. And obviously, flying high now in six, and it'll be really interesting to see if they can maintain that form. But as you say, without Mitrovic. It's always a good sign, isn't it? When when key players are missing, if the mm. side is still showing that kind of co- cohesion and and you know still still carrying out the tactics which the manager wants, it's always a good sign. And I say for, you know, no bigger test than Chelsea in the London derby, which which Fulham haven't won since I think two thousand and six. So to be able to to come out and play that they did and, and get the win uh, was, was was great for them. And um, yeah, they're having a really good season. Yeah, let's look ahead to the weekend now then and we're going to start with the Manchester derby. It's a Saturday lunchtime kickoff, and a win for Manchester United here, Tim, would have them just one point behind City and bang in the title mix. Can they do it? Since saying that, I can't actually believe that. I was at the 6-3 in October and if you, I mean, if you'd said that at the time, we'd have just thought, I thought you're absolutely crazy. I mean, if you'd said it in August when on this podcast we were saying that they'll struggle to finish in the top half of the table, it's remarkable the turnaround. You know, you can't forget the utter turmoil they're in. If they beat City this weekend, they'll think anything's possible. The, the momentum and the run that they're on does remind me a little bit of what Arsenal have been doing and a club sort of, you know, falling back in love with itself again after some horrendous years. So you never know. We said this would be a weird season and it would be very unpredictable, particularly in the second half of the campaign after the World Cup, you know, and I think well, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that now and we are going to get a bit of an unusual uh, finish in the Premier League. It should be a fantastic game. The atmosphere is going to be going to be brilliant, especially after what happened in midweek to Man City. You know, United will really feel that they that they can beat them. Yeah, me personally, I like seeing Manchester United and Arsenal up there because that was what my childhood was was all about. Manchester United and Arsenal battling. So, for, so for me, after years of it being with the teams, I find it quite refreshing that they're both on the way back up now. Valt Veghorst, another Manchester United calamity January signing, or is he going to be a smart one, George? <sighs> 
I think probably somewhere in between where it's easy for us as you know English football fans, plenty of whom don't really look too much at, at the wider picture in Europe to, to just think of Weghorst as a player that this time last year, a relegation threat and Burnley signed to replace Chris Wood uh, and he didn't do too much to, to help their relegation. So on that very kind of small sample size of, of of games, it obviously doesn't look great. And the optics aren't particularly good for Manchester United, especially given it does feel like they've made massive progress in the last couple of months, only to regress to the kind of January signings we've seen in recent years, where, you know, we've seen Agalo being probably the, the one that represented rock bottom, I guess, for, for United in, in, the, in the transfer market. Cavani as well was uh, an okay signing who didn't really live up to, to previous glories. But in... In Veghorst, they've got a player who had a, a really good goal-scoring record across Europe before going to Burnley um, at Wolfsburg, um, where he scored, I think, 60 league goals in nearly 120 games. I mean, that is nothing to, to turn your nose up at in terms of, of output in the Bundesliga. And and, and in the Eredivisie before that, um, Azad Alkmaar scored 18 goals in 30 games in the season before he got his move to, to Germany. So he is someone who has proven himself to be an exciting goal-scorer, target man uh, in European top leagues, before he obviously offers just in terms of pure style you know he is a target man who can hold the ball up well can bring others into play just the kind of player that that United have really lacked in recent seasons and the kind of player that I think certainly Marcus Rashford would love to play off I think Anthony Martial would be far happier playing off someone like Veghorst rather than being the lone striker on his own I don't think he will necessarily be a player that um, is starting week in, week out for United. I think he offers them something different. And in terms of of, of squad depth and, and another body in the door, I, I don't think there's too much to, to to not like about this one. It, it's low risk. It kind of makes sense financially, and uh, and it gives them another option. Yeah, I think I think you're spot on there, George. Especially with the with the low risk element. I mean, it, it's interesting with records because in the summer he wasn't on the list of United's targets. You know, they were looking at you know the likes of Memphis Depay and even uh, Eric Maxim Troop promoting for Bayern Munich. Even Vincent Abubakar as well. So he wasn't really on, on that list. But as you say, a player like that comes available. You have to, you know, as you say, low risk option. And, and he does offer something different for, the, to Manchester United. You know, he, we know his pressing stats. We know he's a, he's a pressing monster, which is uh, what he's been described as. And, um, as you say, a big man up front, he, he allows United to, to mix up their game in, in different, you know, in, in different parts of the game. You know, maybe if United are chasing the game, they may need to go a bit more direct. He offers that option as well, which mean United may not have had before in the likes of Martial. So, it's always good to have different options. It's always good to be able to mix things up and and give defenders something different to think about. And you know, you've got a strong mentality. May not have fitted in too well at Burnley, but somewhere like a, you know a big club like Manchester United, I think he'll he'll thrive there. So as you say, it's a low risk option. I don't think he'll be as transformative as say Henrik Larsson, say, but it won't be as bad as the, the names that you've listed as well, there, George. So yeah, I, th- I think it's a good sign, and I think I think he'll do well. And as you say, it just gives United different options in attack. I think he'll start most weeks. I think Ten Hag's got previous with working with with a striker of his ilk. Manchester United haven't got loads of options. They're, they're the only team that's still left in four competitions in the country. So Manchester United are going to have plenty of games. I think they've thought outside the box with this signing as well. He's gone to Besiktas, done very well, built up a really good relationship there with the fans and, and the players, done well, had a decent World Cup as well. And Manchester United have thought outside the box and, and pulled him in and got his loan terminated. So I think Manchester United deserve credit and I think they're really trending in the right direction at the moment. Rich, Marcus Rashford is looking to make it 8-8 eight in eight at Old Trafford here. 
Yeah, he is in a hot streak, isn't he? He's really, he just looks like someone who's really enjoying this football, doesn't he? I mean, we looked at him last season and even he's come out and said, you know, he's in, mentally, he's in a much different place and things are just flowing for him naturally. You know, as you say, he's, it's a threat going in behind. So the way City are defending at the moment, there's no reason why Rashford can't continue that run. And to come into a game like this with that form, you know, he's going to come to the game flying and he'll be confident that he can extend that record. And the way United are playing and maybe the way City are playing as well, you wouldn't bet against him to do that. Tim, is it a good time to play in Manchester City? They were dumped out the Carabao Cup by Southampton and this game comes at the end of a packed festive period for them. D- defensive changes seem to be happening quite a lot for, for them as well, so they don't seem to have much rhythm at the back. Do you think this is a good time to play them? Mm, if I was a Man United fan, I'd be worried. There's never a good time to play Man City. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you'll get a response from them. I'm sure Guardiola's absolutely torn into them in the past couple of days. I'd expect a big performance from Haaland. But, you know, United are a bit of a juggernaut at the moment. So it's I guess it's how City will handle that occasion and that atmosphere because it is going to be something different to what they've experienced at Old Trafford for quite a few years, I would, I would certainly I would suggest. It does feel like... I know we're not even at the halfway stage of the season yet and, you know, we all like bigging up games and over-exaggerating their importance. But it does feel like a pivotal weekend in terms of the fact that um, Arsenal go to Spurs on Sunday, which obviously we'll talk about later. And, you know, United can do Arsenal a huge favour here. Um, If City win and Arsenal lose at Spurs, the gap's two points or it could be eight points. So it does feel feel like a pretty pretty pivotal, important game. What I want to know is what are these ridiculous thoughts that Pep Guardiola is having? Oh, same, I thought that. (laughs) I know. Is is this like a David James going up front kind of thing for Man City? Because I'm there for that. I think it'll be play. I think it's going to be something like four fullbacks play, or some, some, something like that. He's, <laughs> he seems to be mixing and matching his fullbacks at the moment, doesn't it? He, he I'll tell you who on looks the pitch the other night. So out of form is is you know one of the the, the podcast favourites is Cancelo at the moment. Kind of going back from to, to the World Cup, where for a player whose ability on the ball, his guile, his creativity is always a joy to watch. Dating back two months now, he seems so off it every time you watch him play. Like he it almost his kind of close control is gone and. You know, Guardiola's taken him out of the side. There's there's some stories that clubs have noticed that and are, and are looking to, to see if he's going to be available. It kind of feels like the since the World Cup and because of the way the fixtures have fallen, Guardiola's had to chop and change so much within his side that it's it's kind of there's some uncertainty just, just kind of throwing through the team at the moment where there, there isn't a settled side, there isn't a settled team. Um, we had players coming off a half time against Southampton. You know, obviously the the win against Chelsea in the FA Cup was was pretty clinical and, and resounding but you know right now for, for City it feels like a very different City to the one that went into that 6-3 game City is still odds on to win this for bet 365 they're 17-20 to 20, so you know, the market's still very much expecting the noisy neighbours to, to do the business but yeah I, I think this is going to be you know, this is basically the game where we're going to find out where Eric Tenog's um, United are and maybe that'll be helped by by Pep going all Champions League on us Next we head to Merseyside as Everton welcome Southampton and Liverpool head to Brighton All right, Liverpool fans, we've got some news. The Athletic's dedicated Liverpool podcast has been given a lick of paint and it's coming back bigger and better than ever in 2023. It's still twice a week and it's still your go-to place for transfer news, analysis and opinion from the Athletic's esteemed football writers. But the first big change is me, Tony Evans, as your host. 
I'm the former football editor of the Times of London, and I've been on the Mersey beat for years. You'll never walk alone as part of Anfield folklore, and we want a new name that truly resonates with Liverpool, the fans, the history, the essence of the club. So that's why we went for Walk On. Join us twice a week through the wind and the rain as Jürgen Klopp's Reds aim to save their season and maybe even sign a bleeding midfielder in January. Simply search for Walk On on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Come on, have a listen. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It'll take time to see stuff because immediately perception sometimes kicks in. That when someone kicks a ball long, it's suddenly I've turned into Billy the Fish or someone. And that ain't right. If you go back through my history, I played a diamond where we have 70% of possession with the highest scorers in, in Europe, off from Barcelona and Man City in my time playing a diamond. And then at, at Luton, I had to play a certain way because we had the lowest one of the lowest budgets in the championship, but at a top six club. And that sometimes takes innovation, takes different things and play into your strengths. Now I've come here and I'm building something. And, and look, I want to build something. I want to build a free-flowing, fluid, attacking side. That isn't going to happen overnight. With the greatest respect, the manager I have, I've, I've come up against tonight has had time. He's been able to buy to think, and he's created one of the greatest teams of all time. But it didn't happen in, in, in four weeks. So... I don't know what, what people expect in four weeks. I ain't David Blaine, you know, produce magic or Paul Daniels. I, I have to build and I, I need time to do that. And if I do that, I'll give them a team that they can be proud of because I can't remember many times Southampton being as dominant against Man City. Nathan Jones there following Southampton's surprise Carabao Cup win over Manchester City on Wednesday night. Next up for them, it's Everton at Goodison Park on Saturday. A huge game. It was going to be dubbed El Sacchio, George, but Nathan Jones's cup exploits seem to have bored him some time. A couple of good wins there. And I will say, second season in a row, I've completely reinvented Southampton. Because people who listen to this podcast every week will know that my charity bet last year was for Southampton to go down. And then I think they went and won six in eight or something absolutely ridiculous after I'd done that. And when I was on Sky last week or the week before, I called it a nonsense appointment. And since then, they've won two games. George, you're a big fan of him, aren't you? Yeah, the fact that we speak a lot and you call it a nonsense appointment makes me yeah feel like you, you just don't listen to anything I say, which is a shame. Um, firstly, I think... I'm not David Blaine or even Paul Daniels has got to be one of my favourite quotes of a manager in Premier League history, uh, throwing some serious shade on on Blaine there. I'm over the moon for, for Nathan Jones, if I'm honest. I think the snobbery, not just from Samson fans, but from 
Premier League fans in general looking at you, Dan, um, around his appointment was it was, it was baffling. You've, you've, you've got a guy who I think pound for pound has done the best job in English football in the last decade. No question. You know, what Nathan Jones has said there is completely factually true. The, the team in League Two and in League One that he had, he was blessed to have James Justin and, and Jack Stacey playing as, as his two wingbacks. And the whole their whole team is just based around keeping possession of the ball, getting the wingbacks high and getting the ball into the box. It was unbelievable to watch. It was proper like rock and roll football. And then as soon as they got in the championship, he knew that having sold those two players, he couldn't do that. And so they tore it up. They went again. They played a, a completely different way in order to get the best out of their team and took them to the brink of, of the uh, the Premier League with probably the smallest budget or the second smallest budget in the championship. Yes, there was the, the blip at Stoke at the time. One of those weird ones where Stoke were 24th in the league and I think they were second or uh, first or second for, for XG ratio in the table. It was just like a one of those weird cases where things on the pitch looked pretty poor. The numbers were okay. The results were absolutely terrible. It was a bloated squad full of Premier League players on Premier League wages, just the, the the total opposite of what Jones had been used to. He's very much a siege mentality manager where he needs to create an environment where it's us against them. And I think at Stoke, he struggled to do that. At Saints, I think almost a start that he's had will, will help him to do that. Now, two cup wins does a bit to buy him time. It does very little. It does nothing. It may even hinder their, their, their possibility of staying up because they've got more games coming up in, in the future, which isn't ideal. But it doesn't surprise me at all that sitting in the dugout, 1-0 down to QPR, with the fans singing, Nathan Jones, your football is bleep. It's the moment that things turned around on the pitch and they've scored four goals unanswered. They've beaten Palace 2-1. They've beaten the you know the, the current Premier League champions, the, the team who've made the Carabao Cup their own, 2-0 in an unbelievable performance. I, I really hope he's given time. Any talk of him being out of his depth and the rest of it, he might not do a good job there. I'm, I'm not saying he is guaranteed to, but this is a guy who absolutely has earned the right to try and to, to manage in the Premier League, more than most Premier League managers have. In the dugout here, you've got two managers, and Frank Lampard and Nathan Jones. Who would you prefer to lead you into battle? There's, there's no question for me. Yeah, Nathan Jones looking to get that hostile Southampton fan base on side. Tim, this game is, is huge, isn't it? In Premier in Premier League terms, in the relegation battle, this is a massive one. One of the biggest games of the season, actually. Yeah, it's massive. I, I, I like George there encouraging uh, fans to to tell managers that their football's awful because it clearly works. <laughs> Good psychology. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's massive. I am, yeah, massively worried for Everton to be honest. Been an interesting week for them with with Mashiri coming out uh, with an interview, which I'm not sure has done. Him too many favours uh, yesterday. The same as the interview he uh, gave in the summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's just pre-recorded interview on Talksport in which he's basically um, blamed the fans um, for him having to sack all these all these managers that he's appointed. I mean, Lampard is sort of avoiding criticism, certainly from the fans at the moment. Um, it's all directed at the board, but you know their record recently: two points in one, two, three, four, five, six games. Uh, the defensive solidity they had, which I thought would keep them up, was just has just completely vanished. You know that Brighton game was was horrific uh, when they lost four uh, one ten days ago now. So yeah, Southampton's two good results couldn't have come at a better time. But as George says, they're not the results in the right competitions really. So um, they won't mean anything um, if they if they lose to Everton this weekend. Southampton are not going to win either of the cups. I don't, I don't care if they're in the semi final or not. It's just not going to happen. So um, it's all about. Whether they stay up, but what those results and performances will have done is obviously breed confidence and suggest that the players are buying into what Jones is 
teaching them, which bodes well for this game. Whereas Everton at the moment, it looks like Lampard's in, incapable of, of stopping their slide. Tim, a brave man, wasn't listening to me earlier on in the show. Never bet against Southampton, Tim. Never. <laughs> they've won, they've never won the double. Can't them. believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rich, that, that statement, nonsense, to, to be honest, for, for, from the Everton owner. I think I think he also, he started to he question the Everton fans a little bit. But the Everton fans are not saying they're going to get on the team's back during the game. They're saying they're going to protest after the game at the board, which I think is, is the right thing to do. They're also saying that in the big games like, like this one against Southampton, they're going to all lie in the streets again, welcome the coach, make it make it a really good atmosphere like they did last season, which helped keep them up. So it was bizarre for, for him to say that in his statement. You're absolutely right. And as you say, like last season, if we're being honest, it was really the fans who helped galvanise the side to, to stay up. I mean, that, that run of home form towards the back end of last season pretty much kept Everton up and it was really because the, the fans created that great atmosphere at Gillison Park in order to, to to spur the side on. So to kind of call them out was I feel was a bit harsh, a bit bizarre. Um and as you say, you know, they they're gonna do the same again uh, this weekend, lying in the streets, getting behind the side as they always do. So yeah, again this has uh, as Tim said, it's very much a, a cut and paste statement and and, and the interview did them less favours than than what it should have done. And as you say if things change in the pitch, then obviously it'd be a more rosier atmosphere. But I, I just, as, as Tim said again, I can't see them halting the slide. I, I, really, I really can't. I'm just, as you say, just going forward, look very toothless. And at the beginning of the season, I think they had they had the best defence after the first ten or um, after the first eight or ten games or something like that. And that's just completely gone now. And and that was what they built their their successes on. So the fact that that's gone, they've got nothing going forward. Roby's a big miss in midfield because he was one of their better players this season. I really struggle to see where the where, where the catalyst is going to come from in order for them to hold that slide. Um, so I, I really do fear for them. Yeah, looking at the, the prices relegation as well, it kind of shows just how important this game is. Uh, Bournemouth still the favourites, two to five to go down. The bet three six five. Southampton a four to seven. Forest even money. Everton eleven to ten. Wolves seven to four. Leeds four to one. West Ham eleven to two. Leicester six to one. If Southampton beat Everton here, then they go level on points um, with uh, with them. Uh, although they'll still be behind unless it's an absolute thrashing on goal difference uh, and uh, currently level on points for West Ham as well. But we'll have to see what happens there. I, I still personally think that Leicester are an, are an absolutely massive price for relegation uh, at six to one on seventeen points currently. Um, you know that that mini revival looks a long way away now. They, I think, look to me again, like possibly the worst team in the league on, on current form. Uh, and they're not very far clear of the, of the drop zone. But um, yeah, a huge game, as you say. Maybe not El Sacco anymore, but but certainly in terms of the relegation race, one of the biggest games this season. Yeah, next we're going to look at Brighton and Hove Albion against Liverpool. That's Saturday, 3pm. It's Deserby's Brighton against a Virgil van Dijkless Liverpool. Has a game ever looked more nailed on for goals, Rich? Well, it's interesting you say that because when Van Dijk played in the first game, it was a three-all draw. So, um, you know, <laughs> we, 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 saw, we saw goals go all there and expect to see the same again at, uh, at, at the Amex. I mean, Brighton are in fantastic form and, and, and Liverpool just, uh, just aren't. I mean, the midfield is non-existent, um, although, of course, they're they always a threat going forward. So, yeah, I, th- I think we'll see goals. I think we'll see, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, chances, especially on the transition for both sides. And it'll just be a case of, <laughs> of who can score more. And to be fair, I'm back at our back Brighton. They seem to be going on an, on an upward curve. Whereas Liverpool moved to injuries and you know, Darwin Nunes didn't train on on Thursday, as you say, he, he's probably 
probably their biggest threat at the moment. So with him out, you know, all, all words do do point to Brighton. Of course, of, of course, Liverpool are always going to be a threat with the likes of Salah and things like that. But I just think Brighton, especially at home, the Derby seems to be taking in a more and upward curve. I'm excited to see how they get on, but um, I think they'll cause Liverpool a lot of problems. Yeah, Tim, this is Deserby's 15th game in charge of Brighton and they're still absolutely flying. It's quite interesting to see that you know, Brighton have continued what they were doing under Potter, under Deserby, if not maybe got better and then seeing Potter's struggles at Chelsea. I think that's something that's definitely really interesting. But how do you rate his start? Mm, good. Um, better than expected, actually. He's setting pretty high standards with young players. I think they had four players, those 21 or younger in the, in the team against Everton, which is fantastic. We've sort of criticised Southampton for putting a lot of youth in their team this season, but it's, yeah, it's much better if you can do it from a position of strength like Brighton are. And yeah, I was reading the piece from Andy Naylor the other day, uh, Brighton correspondent at the Athletics, saying uh, a lot of the players are seeing Deserby as an upgrade on, on Potter and they're very excited about what he can, what he can deliver um, in the future. You know, they're very front, obviously still on the front foot, very energetic, lots of goals. I think they're the top away scorers in the Premier League. There's still a little bit of a thing about results not quite matching performances, but, you know, the work he's done in, in a very short space of time is really impressive. I'm genuinely excited to see what they can do over the next sort of 18 months. Yeah, Todd Bird is probably circling around his Erby and his Brighton staff as we speak. <laughs> George, Evan Ferguson looks some prospect at 18 years old. Kind of, it, this would be some story, I think, a player coming up th- through the Brighton Academy and becoming that number nine that we've all talked about Brighton needing for some time. We've said for years, oh, Brighton are really good and then it gets to the penalty area and it all falls down and they, just, they haven't had that... 10, 15, 20 gold a season striker. Evan Ferguson looks a potent finisher. I mean, they actually bought him from Bohemians and back in 2020 oh, as a kid. Well, but, you know, he, he was playing, he was playing first team football. Technically, he's played in the academy and come through. Yeah, yeah exactly. Say. He was just, yeah, I think he played that. a couple of games for Bohemians age, kind of 15 or 16 before, before moving up. Um, I knew yeah, you'd I, know. I know, well, I also know that I think there are a couple of championship sides <clears throat> and, and maybe even a League One sides who thought um, that, they were going to get Evan Ferguson on loan in January to the end of the season, who were cursing their luck when he when he popped up in the cup and scored the way he did. Uh, and there's absolutely no chance uh, Brighton can let him go anywhere now. It's interesting how often that happens sometimes where, yeah, I mean, it looks like a masterstroke now, but I think um, if you told Deserby and Brighton uh, a few weeks ago that Ferguson would have made the splash he had done, they'd have been fairly surprised. Uh, he looks brilliant. I mean, he looks like a, a proper all-out-and-out um, striker who's going to score goals, who's certainly handles himself physically for his age in- incredibly well. I'm really excited by him. I'm excited by Brighton under Deserby. They are probably the team as a neutral, the most enjoyable to watch. And their games are a chaos. Um, yeah, as Rich said, they're, they're brilliant in transition whilst also playing possession-based football. It's kind of rare. It almost reminds me a bit of when of when Liverpool are at their best, where not only do they control the ball, but also can be absolutely devastating on, on the counter and, and also even just breaking through a low low block at pace. Um, that is not what we're seeing from Liverpool at the moment. We, we mentioned goals at the top. Unsurprisingly, the goal lines are, are, are fairly... Uh, high, you're getting four to seven for over two and a half goals, 11 to eight for over three and a half. I'd probably go all the way to the top. You know, if you want to over five and a half goals, uh, as it was in the first game is seven to one, if you want to to back goals here, because it it does feel like it. And it's been the case with Deserby throughout his managerial career. You know, the goals follow him around because of his, his ethos and his style of play. Yeah, interestingly as well, Brighton have scored 14 goals in their last four games in all competitions. So they come into the game in really good goal scoring form. And under Deserby, you know, they scored three or more goals in half of his games, in seven of his 14 games. So, you know, as 
it's a side to banging confidence, banging form, and are actually penetrating now. As you say, the, the big thing before was, do they have a number nine or could they have a number nine who could put the ball in the back of the net? But they're getting goals from all over the pitch. And as you say, playing you know good free-flowing football and really exciting to watch. So as you say, I expect goals from Brighton. And of course, as I said, Liverpool always a threat going forward. So yeah, we'll definitely see goals galore in this game. Tim, I know you all have been watching Gakpo's debut last weekend. Goals everywhere again in that game even those that didn't count but what did you make of Gakpo's debut? Mm, it, was, it was okay he linked up pretty well with Andy Robertson uh, some nice touches and some good movement but I think you could t- oh, I don't know you could tell he hadn't played for a month uh, I think he's barely trained as well got to give a, a, a nod to Wolves uh, kid Dexter Lembekisa who made his debut at right back and, and, and handled him pretty well I thought so yeah you know when I looked at the team sheets for that for that game I just assumed Wolves would get walloped maybe that's because I'm a Wolves fan and a, an eternal pessimist but you know, Liverpool played such a strong team compared to Wolves who rested a lot of players, but it just goes to show how fallible and vulnerable Liverpool are at the moment and um, Brighton will absolutely fancy the chances of beating them. Yeah, it's trivia time then and back in October, Leandro Trossard became only the third visiting player to score a hat-trick against Liverpool in the Premier League era. Who are the other two? And I will say I would have only got one of these. I'm going to come to you first, Rich, because you're nodding your head confidently. <laughs> no, only because I remember it very well. Um, Andre Arshavin, he famously got a four, didn't he? Um, yeah. Just remember that celebration of he smashed in his fourth of his left foot in the top corner. It's like his eyes were going to pop out of his head. So, uh, yeah, you, you can't, can't forget that. Arshavin, he's done it! Four! But the second one uh, evades me. Is it in the Premier League or is it the Premier League era? Didn't, didn't Julio Baptista score a hat-trick against Liverpool? But I don't know if it was Anfield oh, no, in, that's the, not, in the that's cup. Not, that's not the answer. But I think you're right. That you are right. So it is just Premier League. Okay. Well, I'll take that Premier as a League. given I can only answer the question Ooh. in front of me. <laughs> you got it. I think Tim's got it. I know it. It's, uh, it's Peter and Love. It is Peter and Love. Nice. I remember this coming up. At the, I, don't remember, I don't remember it from the time. I remember this coming up um, after the reverse fixture. Oh, so you've got, well, you've got it. You've got it between you. And Georgia even got and that kind of got an answer right as well it was in yeah. the cup I do, I do, four, I do remember six, that game. yeah I remember a- that game Anfield so there you go three yeah. oh well done team excellent effort on the old trivia there next all eyes on North London as Arsenal head to Spurs This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Right then, before we continue with the podcast, please remember that if you are going to have a bet this weekend, make sure that you do so responsibly. George, you've got some helpful tips on how to make sure that we do just that. Yeah, it's important to us that the listeners of this podcast are in control of their gambling. This is a podcast for those who are 18 years of age and older. Please ensure that you are only staking what you can afford to lose and do visit BeGambleAware.org for any information to ensure that you're gambling responsibly. This is the weekend preview here on the Athletic Football Podcast. It's time for Tottenham against Arsenal now, Sunday, 4.30pm. Arsenal's top four hopes all but ended with defeat away at Tottenham last season. How big in the context of this season could Sunday be for Arsenal, George? I mean, it's it's huge. Given Tottenham's recent form, um, you know, before the, the back-to-back wins, we've seen last week um, to go to, to Spurs, the way that Arsenal have been playing this season, they should be expecting to win this game. There's no doubt about that. Their performance levels have been consistently higher. Their record against Tottenham, um, clearly very good. So yes, they are in a position now where they can just about afford to drop points. And, and with the City having a, a difficult trip to, to Old Trafford as well, this might be an opportunity. And they'll know by the time this game kicks off, this might be an opportunity to, to pull further clear. Um, but you have to feel like with Arsenal looking so resolute this season and you know bouncing back from their from their momentary slip ups early in the campaign a defeat against Tottenham and what that would do to to morale it would be a real test of their mettle to see if they were able to to come back from it so yeah i think it's a huge game for for both sides i think for antonio conte this is his opportunity to you know he, he's got nothing to prove but he needs to show that he is still the man capable of getting the, the most out of this Spurs side because if he can't lift Tottenham for this one. Now for Tottenham fans, yes, top four is is essential, but stopping Arsenal or, or playing their part and stopping Arsenal from winning the league is as big a, a carrot as you can really dangle for them. So a, a massive game for both sides and, and I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it's going to go. And interestingly, you know, Arsenal are six or five to win this one. So the market very much thinking that City have a better chance of going to United and beating them than Arsenal have of beating Spurs, which I'm not sure I agree with. No, I don't think I agree with that either, to be perfectly honest. And it is a game of strikers. It's Eddie Nketiah against Harry Kane. Nketiah stepped up against both Chelsea and Manchester United last season. But off the back of a brace against Oxford, does he need to prove his credentials in a big game for Arsenal this season, Rich? Yeah, I think so. I think it's where you're, where you're judged, isn't it? I think... Obviously, he's great. He's coming aside and he's he's scoring goals, as you say, against kind of you know, so-called lesser sides. And also as well, he's scoring like the goals where he makes it, may make it 2-0 or 3-0, almost to seal the game. To take it to the next level, he now needs to be the match winner, the decision maker. You know, can he can he score the winner? Can he can he prove to be decisive in, in these games? And, you know, there's no better chance to do that than against Spurs. You know, he comes in in decent form. He's confident. And his game's really, really improved. As you say, he's always been a, a great finisher in and around the six-yard box, in the 18-yard box, give him a chance. He's probably going to score it, but there are always questions about his hold-up play. Was he was he strong enough to to hold off defenders and and bring other players into play? Was he technically good enough outside the box? And I think he's he's really improved that aspect of his game. It's great to see a young player just really just progressing and growing into into a man. I mean, there was um 
don't know if you guys have seen, there's a progress picture of him from 2019 to today. And the, the size that he's put on, the muscle, the bulk that, that, that is put on, he, he looks incredible. I mean, I, I could take some tips from that for sure. But, um, it's, <laughs> it's, um, he, he's, he's, to see him grow and develop into a player is, is, is great to see. Um, and as I say, to take him to the next, uh, to the next level now is about being decisive in games, scoring the winners and, or, you know, providing that assist. So against Newcastle, we had the opportunities in the case and point where they keep made a good save. But if you want to kind of take your game to the next level, they're the chances that you have to put away. When it's tight, can you score the winner? I think that's that's where he's going to kind of have to elevate his game. But um, as you say, no better opportunity to do that than this weekend. And Tim, you've gone from covering a team that didn't really have a striker to one that's got one of the best of all time. Harry Kane, one goal short of Jimmy Greaves' Tottenham Hotspur 266 goal club record. Feels quite inevitable that he does it against Arsenal. He's 15 in 18 Premier League games this season and he's got 14 in 18 against Arsenal. He's only scored more against Leicester, 20, and Everton, 15. It does feel inevitable, doesn't it, Tim? So he needed a hat-trick against Portsmouth in the FA Cup last week to break the record. And I thought, okay, this could happen today. And then, and I don't care if this is slanderous, um, he scored one goal and he stopped He stopped trying, basically, because he knew... You called uh, it as well. That, 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 he did call it. Yeah. The, the asked, honestly, I, I was watching him. He just, he just, he was barely running around for the last 20 minutes. He'll have been thinking about this for a long time, how and when he's going to break this record. And Spurs go to Man City in the next game on Thursday night. And yeah, uh, a, a penalty in a 4-1 defeat at the Etihad is not quite going to have the same resonance as scoring twice in the North London derby. So yeah, he'll he'll be up for it. That's a that's a, a very interesting side narrative, obviously, to the game. It is a huge game for Spurs, less for their league position because I think they can lose this match and still qualify for the top four. You know, pretty uh, because there are so many games left. But more, yeah, George is right. It's more of a I guess a barometer of where they're at under Conte, a barometer of where they're at compared to Arsenal, which I think Spurs fans compare themselves to Arsenal pretty incessantly, not so much vice versa. Spurs have got a really good record in the derby at home. This tends to be a home a home win um, in the last few years. I think they last lost at home to Arsenal in 2014. So that goes in their favour. But going against them is the fact that almost all of their defeats, apart from to Villa a couple of weeks ago, have been against top six sides this season. So they've lost to Arsenal, Liverpool, Newcastle and Man United. That's four of their five defeats. Whereas they beat the teams below them, not comfortably, but that they have done. So they've come unstuck when they've when they've had to play teams of real quality. So the first 15 minutes will be crucial. Arsenal make fast starts, Spurs make horrendous ones. The key area will be midfield because Arsenal got the best midfield in the league for me this season. Whereas Spurs, <clears throat> they've got Hoiberg, but alongside him, Bentancourt hasn't played since the end of the World Cup when he limped off. He's a maybe. Um, Bissouma went off in the warm-up against Portsmouth last week and couldn't play, which leaves Pape Sarr, young Senegal international, who, you know, looks good, but he's never started a Premier League match, or Oliver Skip, who's been in and out of the squad recently with fitness issues. So that's a massive issue for midfield. I do wonder if they'll spring a surprise and put Eric Dyer in midfield just for some experience and some some stability. But yeah, um, that's where it effectively will be won, won and lost. Spurs are on the cusp of having three really important players come back, Bentancourt, Kulisevsky and Richarlison, who all elevate that team a lot. I don't think Richarlison's going to play at the weekend, but uh, Kulisevsky's in training and Bentancourt's a maybe. So uh, the team sheet could be could be crucial as far as this one goes. Beyond breaking club records for goals, George, what does the future hold for Harry Kane? Wow, um, that's an open question. I mean, who who knows? It does feel like now, the stage of the career he's at at the moment, 
I don't necessarily think clubs are going to be willing to spend what it would take to get him out of Spurs. Um, I, I think he quite clearly harbours ambitions as you would, you know, if he's not going to win major trophies, at least he can do an Alan Shearer and position himself at the top of the, the Premier, League, Premier League all-time goal scorer record. I'd be really surprised to see him take a move to, you know, to a European club. I guess in his mind, you know, if, if the likes of a, of a PSG did come in for him, you know, those, those are the only kind of teams we can imagine would, would, would be willing to, to part with the money it would take to get Daniel Levy to sell. Would you prioritise risking that that legacy to to roll the dice and, and probably have like a twenty percent chance of or twenty five percent chance of one day winning the the Champions League and um, that would be the big question and, and you know probably a hundred percent chance of winning a, a league title but who knows but it does you know that it felt like there were two or three occasions over the last couple of years where Kane I mean one very obvious one with Manchester City where Kane nearly walked out the door uh, at, at this stage now and and I also guess it depends on what happens after Antonio Conte like I'd be very surprised if Conte is still Tottenham manager. Um, at the end of next season it might even be sooner than then uh, I think Conte has played a big part in keeping Kane at the club over the last year or so if he were to move on and they didn't bring in somebody of the requisite quality then, then maybe Kane would look to, to move on but um, with every day that goes by it, it feels more and more likely in my mind that Kane will, will end his career at, at Spurs and Tim I read your piece on the Levy out protest do you just want to talk about that those a little bit and maybe point the athletic listeners in the direction of that piece yeah sure so um so I wrote a piece this week um People may have heard or may not. There have been some uh, quite prominent Levy out chants recently, which started in the defeat to Villa and continued throughout the 4-0 win at Crystal Palace last week. So, yeah, um, this obviously isn't just down to sort of recent results. I mean, Spurs are fifth in the league. They're in the last 16 of the Champions League. You know, they're playing arguably the best stadium in the country. They've got probably one of the best training grounds in the country. They've got one of the most successful managers in European football. There's a lot of historical context to it, which I go into into the article. But I think... There was such uh, renewed optimism last summer when uh, Enoch pledged to spend £150 million on on transfers and obviously Conte and they were on a high from last season after finishing fourth and I think fans were just expecting a little bit more from um, from this season and those kind of um, historical grievances over all sorts of things, managerial appointments, lack of investment over several years in the squad, flirting with the Super League, flirting with moving the club to Stratford, all kinds of things. Season tickets, season tickets cost a grand at Spurs, so you know uh, patience is then in, in slightly short supply when when things go wrong. So there's lots to it, and this one all continues to rumble on, really. Um, and unlike Everton and Mashiri, I certainly wouldn't expect um, Levy to go on the radio next week to defend his uh, his record because he's 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 very quiet, which is another another frustration for Spurs fans. So those are our featured games to look out for this weekend with the full Premier League weekend looking a little something like this. It gets underway tonight as Villa take on Leeds. The Manchester derby is the lunchtime kickoff for Old Trafford before four three o'clock on Saturday. Wolves v West Ham, Forest take on Leicester as well as Everton v Southampton and Liverpool's trip to Brighton. Brentford take on Bournemouth in the tea time kickoff following those with three games to come on Sunday. Newcastle play host to Fulham and Chelsea take on Crystal Palace before the North London derby at 4.30. George, Wolves v West Ham. How much trouble could David Moyes be in with the defeat at Molyneux? You'd think loads of trouble now. Um, if they lose this game and um, and Southampton beat Everton, then they'll be level on points with with the relegation zone, uh, with, with more players down there, with more teams down there as well. They are right in the mire. Um, as I say, 11-2 for relegation this feels 
very, very generous to me, both him and Leicester. Um, there seem to be delusions of grandeur based on, on previous season's form rather than actually looking at what's going on in front of them. It's obviously a very difficult time for West Ham at the moment after the passing of, of David Gold. I think the, the club are, are in mourning currently and you know, for, for David Moyes as well, somebody who had a great relationship with. Um, I don't know if that will impact any decisions made in his future in the grand scheme of things, given what's going on there. It's largely irrelevant. But um, on the pitch, certainly, uh, I think Moyes's time is, is probably numbered because at some stage, a club like West Ham have to do whatever they can to try and stay up. The one thing you can change is your manager. And uh, that might be the case. Yeah, and Tim, speaking of those down the bottom, another huge game in the East Midlands this weekend. Nottingham Forest take on Leicester at the City Ground. Yeah, I went to the reverse fixture and uh, Leicester gave Forrest a 4-0 uh, thump in. And that was the way that the form guide was at the time, really. Leicester were just starting to, to play some good football again and regain their confidence. And Forrest just couldn't find any kind of winning formula. And Steve Cooper was messing around with his team. And they played four up front basically that day. And uh, it was a bit shambolic because they couldn't get hold of the ball in midfield. And I was really surprised to see a manager of Steve, Steve Cooper's intelligence sort of do that. And again, yeah, you flip it around now and almost the reverse is true, really. You know, Forrest have finally got a foothold. They're at the bottom three. They're level on points with Leicester, I believe, uh, which again, if you'd, if you'd said that back in October, I would, would, wouldn't have thought that was the case. So there are normally goals in this one. Forrest thumped Leicester in the cup around this time, sort of a year ago at the city ground. And then, like I said, yeah, 4-0 in October to Leicester. But if, if, you, if you're going on the form guide... It's Forest, I think. So, yeah, they're in a really good sort of headspace at the moment and obviously in the Carabao Cup semi-finals as well. Yeah, another big game here, Rich. Newcastle welcome Fulham to St. James's Park off the back of Rich in their first domestic semi-final since 2005. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle are riding a crest of a wave at the moment, aren't they? And um, <clears throat> so they're looking really solid all across the pitch. You know, Premier League's meanest defence and, and going forward, they're looking very, very exciting as well. And as I say, they come up against the Fulham side who, as I said earlier, you know, under Marco Silva having another fantastic season, probably exceeding all, all expectations. So yeah, again, a really, really intriguing encounter, but two sides who come into the game of, of good form. And as you say, I don't think it'll be like an end to end game or thrilling game, but we should see some, some good football. Um, should see Newcastle kind of maintaining that momentum that, that they've built and, and Fulham looking to stay resolute and hitting them on a counter attack. And, you know, likes of Andres Pereira, brilliant, playing very well. And if Mitrovic can come back against his former side and, and do a job, they'll be very happy indeed. So yeah, it's a really, really intriguing game, but two sides who are banging form and, um, yeah, really looking to see how it all come out. Yeah, and shout out to your microphone, Rich, because all the way through the podcast, it's been changing colour, and I've got to say, it's had me absolutely out. It's <laughs> mesmerising. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but before we do go, it's time for the six-score challenge. We normally hand over to Steve, but with him away this week, I'm going to run through them. That doesn't mean that I'm going to leave the football early tonight, though. The lads will know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're going to write them down Six- on a scrap of paper? Oh, and, no, well, and send it to yeah, yourself. I might actually do that. I might do some <laughs> awful handwriting and just fire it over to someone else to put on because that's what Steve does. But uh, six games, predict all six right, and there's a million pounds there to take home with consolation prizes also for getting three, four, and five scores correct. George, it's you first. Brighton against Liverpool. Finger in the air stuff, this, isn't it? 4 2. Who to? You've got to tell Brighton. me who to. 4 2 to Brighton. That is a big mm. prediction. And then Thank Forrest you. Leicester for you as well. Uh, 2-0 Forest. 2-0 to Forest. important when you're doing predictions that you say which team you think is going to True. win and Tim at Brentford against Bournemouth 0-0 uh, terrible game Love a nil-nil. didn't you predict a 0-0 last week I feel like you did I could be wrong just my natural uh, pessimism and Chelsea against Crystal Palace 
Uh, uh, 3-1 Palace. Felt like you were going to say nil-nil again. Then I felt like I could see the cogs working and you thinking about thinking about nil-nil. Rich, you've got Newcastle against Fulham. Mm. Um, I say 2-1 Newcastle. I think Newcastle just have a bit too much, but uh, yeah, it'll be a good game. And Tottenham v Arsenal, the big one. Uh, I'm going to say 2-0 Arsenal. Um, you said, I think it was George said earlier, you know, Arsenal start very fast. And I mean, Tottenham in their second half, so it just, it just can't continue. It's not sustainable. I mean, sooner or later, they're going to come unstuck. And uh, I think it will be against Arsenal. So yeah, 2-0 Arsenal. Let's see. Let's see how we get on. And let's see if I remember to put those on for us. That's it here from the weekend preview. Thanks to the guys for joining me. And thanks to all of you for listening as well. For unrivaled coverage during the January transfer window, you can subscribe to The Athletic now for just $1.99 a month for the first 12 months. Just head over to theathletic.com slash football pod. And wherever you're watching your football at the weekend, I hope you enjoy it. Have a great weekend. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.